0: There's a Trader Joe's podcast. What the fuck? (laughs) It's like produced by Trader Joe's. Oh my lord. (laughs) This is... We should just stop doing this. Okay, so I guess you've sort of uh, introduced to me to the concept of what a podcast is. I just don't really know what our podcast is about, and I don't know who you are, so could you please introduce uh,
1: us? I- introduce myself?
0: Yeah, to me, because I've forgotten who you
1: are. Well, in the blue chair this week, it's me, Hugh, your co-host. And what, who am I? Uh... I want to say, I want (laughs) to (laughs) say, I want to say, I'm going to cut this entire bit when I come to edit it. What? I think my favorite artificial flavors, my top three favorite artificial flavors, which is a great way of opening the podcast is, uh, apple, watermelon and banana. They're my three favorite.
0: I don't, I don't like banana that
1: much. And, and people, people claim that the artificial banana flavor does not taste like banana, but I assert that it does.
0: Care do you, uh, explain yourself further?
1: Well, I've, I, as a child, we often homemade our own desserts and candies to the extent of making a banana smoothie, speaking of banana smoothies, and then pouring that into a, a like pop mold. What's the word for it? There's icy pole, icy pole molds. Popsicle? Yeah, as Americans would say popsicles. As we would say icy poles.
0: Icy pole? Are you, are, you, are you fucking kidding
1: me? No, that's serious. That's true. I don't believe you. No, I don't believe that shit. You can research that right now. You, we would not say popsicle. That's definitely an Americanism we wouldn't use. But we definitely say icy pole. Certainly in Melbourne we do. Anyway, so we have an icy pole mold. Or a popsicle mold. Whatever your preference is. Popsicle. We'd pour the banana smoothie in it and then set it in the freezer for a, a spell. And then we would have this, this frozen banana smoothie thing. They would go brown. And it was it was nice
0: though. Yeah, it sounds sounds
1: great. But from years of, of licking those popsicles made from banana smoothies in my own freezer. Um, I I came to recognize that that taste was astonishingly similar to what you get from artificial banana-flavored candy, or as we would say, lollies.
0: Okay, I can accept
1: it. What are your top three favorite artificial flavors in the context of candy?
0: Um, One time I had breast milk lollipops, so that's one. Did you really? Yeah, I did. It was artificial.
1: Please explain.
0: Well, there is a website that sold them that I think has gone out of business or is at least stopped selling them. I
1: can't remember. I'm going to guess it went out of business. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like
0: a. I mean, they specifically made it. The, wait a minute. I'm mean, going to look it up. I think they specifically made it to be like, oh my God, this company is a breast milk Wally Pops, right? You know?
1: Wally File. But it had no genuine breast milk in it. It was no. all
0: It was artificial. all artificial, yeah and i was like uh, this is when i was in college and i would waste money on any old garbage and uh i was like i'm gonna buy some of these so i could tell people that i've had them and then i ate them and they were like kind of bad so i didn't yeah the company's still in business
1: were they sweet
0: yes just like how breast milk is apparently sweet yeah i can't
1: remember
0: oh they have a pizza wall. i thought that sounds disgusting this company sounds gross
1: So they're still in business and they produce just weird flavored candy.
0: Yeah, I assume that's what their their thing is, right?
1: I remember those Jelly Beans, Jelly Bellies. There was a series of those that were like vomit flavor and stuff.
0: When I was a kid, uh, Jelly Belly made a flavor of Jelly Bean, which is sour peach, right? And
1: it was my favorite flavor and they stopped making it. I think I only remember their standard peach flavor.
0: Yeah, the peach one is fine, but the sour peach
1: one is the best. Wait, so, so did you actually name your, your top flavors? I don't know,
0: like Sour Peach, Blue Raspberry, that's another one of my favorite of mine. Um, So, Hugh, now that you've stopped discussing about our favorite flavors.
1: Well, have we done our least favorite flavors? Oh my god,
0: I don't want to do this to you.
1: Well, okay,
0: what's your least favorite flavor? Like, artificial flavor? Probably cherry. I don't mind cherry. I mean, it's a little like, you know, cough syrup, but... Yeah, know. medicinal. Yeah, that's fine with me. I don't really mind. I actually can't think
1: like, of any flavors that I don't really dislike right
0: now. They're not pretty much fine with me.
1: I know some people have a visceral reaction against, like, licorice-flavored things, I like, like, the, I like black, licorice. the black jelly beans. But I like licorice, too.
0: Uh, I'll tell you, I like um, pineapple. I like artificial pineapple.
1: Yeah, I don't mind artificial pineapple. I like it. <laughs> Sometimes I find the citrus ones, like the lemon and lime... A little bit bland compared to other flavors.
0: Yeah. They're still fun. I find you a little bland compared to other flavors.
1: That's fair. What, what, what flavor would you compare me to?
0: Um, probably got like artificial chocolate.
1: Oh yeah. That's not bad. People like chocolate. Yeah. You're
0: You're a good duplicate of something that people like, hmm. but you're, you're off, you know? So, uh, today on the podcast, we're going to uh, present you a. Wait, wait!
1: Can we do a clean cut of like introducing the podcast that wasn't whatever the hell that garbage was?
0: <laughs> it's so funny.
1: Fine, guess. But you have to do it. If you want to redo it, you have to do it. All right, fine. Hey, welcome to Project A Plus. Uh, my name is Hugh, and I'm joined joined by uh, Hunter.
0: Yeah, that's my name. It's Hunter. Hi, how's it going?
1: Yeah, not bad. Or are you talking to the audience
0: uh, I was talking to both you and the audience but you are my audience so in a sense it's one and the same yeah I'm not bad that's good to hear you uh, get an early start today
1: I did I woke up about 7:30 uh, It's pretty early popped in the shower I even this is interesting this is interesting for the listeners uh-huh. because of the weather now being early spring or because of the fact it's now early spring uh, I finally decided to wash my bed sheets it wasn't so much like the buildup of grime from my body over the past, you know, three months <laughs> Jesus <Christ. laughs> as the fact that I knew that if I washed them, they would dry in this particular weather. How often do people, like, I'm not really sure how often people wash sheets. I do it every two weeks. I used to do it regularly when I lived on my own or, or relatively regularly, but because like I live with other people and sometimes they've hung stuff out and you know, it's a bit of a hassle. So I just like, I can, I can get by. I mean, it's it was winter at the time, so I'm sure I'm not sweating that much. And, you know. Yuck! It's only me. I'm not. I'm not inviting anyone back. So.
0: Well, that's good at least.
1: I do have a tendency, uh, not specifically with bed sheets, but but I guess it extends to it these days, um, of wearing things until they glisten. Ugh.
0: <laughs> that's disgusting. What's wrong with you?
1: And this is like this is like home stuff. This is like stuff for not the sort of thing I would wear if I'm leaving the house or seeing anyone. No, you don't ever do that. So yeah, but so that's what I mean. So the rest of the time when I'm just at home and I don't want to like waste good clothes on just being home, I'll tend to wear like the same thing like every day, like different underpants, but the same like outer clothes. That's noxious. <laughs> and it gets to a point where like I would have like a, a favorite. Oh Am I going to, are you going to make me throw (laughs) off? No, I'd have like a favorite t-shirt I would wear like constantly. Um, and especially like in hot weather, if it was like a lighter t-shirt because the heavier ones aren't as comfortable when you're sitting about the house and it's like really humid or something. So I'd wear the same one over and over again that I, that I got accustomed to. And it would really get to the point where it would just, even though I'd wash it occasionally, it would, it would have so much of my body fluids. Like embedded in, in its That's fibers, fucking disgusting. That it would genuinely glisten, it would have oh, this, this glistening look. I actually feel like ill because you're telling me this. Anyway, so so that that could well happen to this particular set of bed sheets in my current setup. But I did watch them today. They are on the line as we speak. That's
0: disgusting.
1: The funny things about these ones though is this particular bed sheet ha- already has a slight glisten as it is. Oh my so it'll god! Be, it'll be difficult for me to tell. How much is its natural effect, and how much is is caused by... Please stop.
0: Please stop. (laughs) (laughs) There's something deeply wrong with you. (laughs) Well, I I only sleep in my underwear, so I don't know why you have that problem.
1: But what sort of underwear do you wear? Just, I don't know, boxers. Uh, Not boxers. What are not boxers? Like briefs? You wear briefs? Yeah, or both. I think I I genuinely only wear... Cotton boxes. Cotton
0: boxes. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that we're having this discussion, which certainly will be cut out of the final edit of this podcast.
1: No, it won't. You know it won't. Because <laughs> you're a monster.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So we've introduced ourselves. Today on the podcast, we are going to discuss three, count them, three films. One. In addition to, of course, our bonus features. Oh, not count them now. The first film we're going to discuss is currently playing in theaters and is called Crazy Rich Asians. In addition to Crazy Rich Asians, we are going to continue our uh, little mini marathon of the filmography of Nagasa Oshima and discuss two of his films, Night and Fog in Japan and The Pleasures of the Flesh.
1: There, is that good enough? Perfect. Okay, great. So Crazy Rich Asians is based on a novel by Kevin Kwan, and it's directed by John Chu, And it tells the story of a young couple in New York comprised of Rachel Chu, played by Constance Wu.
0: Did you know that uh, Constance Wu went to my high school?
1: Did she really? Yeah, she did. That is interesting. And Nick Young, played by Henry Golding. Now, we never actually get to see how this couple forms. They've already been a couple for a year.
0: Yes, there's no me cute, which I assume was distressing to you. That's right, that's right. We will get to
1: that. <laughs> well, <Whoa. laughs> Cool your jokes, all right, so.
0: Okay, I'm calling.
1: So the uh, the essential plot is that Rachel Chu has not met Nick Young's family because they're from Singapore. And
0: because he has deliberately sort of obscured them.
1: He's not involved her uh, with his extended family. Yes. Um, at this point in their relationship. Um, but one of his brothers or cousins is getting married.
0: Uh, His best friend. No one in this family is getting married. It's his best friend. Oh,
1: is it just his best friend? Okay, so his best friend is getting married. Someone didn't watch the movie. And they've invited him, obviously, to the wedding in Singapore. Yeah, to be his best man. And he has decided to take his girlfriend, Rachel Chu, over to Singapore to attend the wedding and meet his extended family for the first time. The trajectory of the plot from this point onwards is how Rachel Chu deals with the fact that Nick Young is from a extremely wealthy and notable Singaporean family, and uh, how she deals with fitting in with the expectations set upon her by the, the domineering matriarch played, of course, by Michelle Yeoh.
0: By film royalty, Michelle Yeoh.
1: So, essentially, that's that's the setup. It's just how she deals with Nick Young's extended family.
0: And how she deals with the fact, like, the class differences. Yes. Because her family is not crazy rich.
1: No. So, she's, she's from a completely different background to Nick Young. She's She's got a single mother who immigrated to uh, the United States and is working class.
0: Well... Middle class, I guess.
1: What was what was her job? I can't remember that. Remember the story, uh, she's but... a
0: real estate agent. Ah, okay, then so not, not, probably not, class. not working class. <laughs> no. <laughs> cool compared to these rich, this rich family, everyone is is working class.
1: Anyway, so that's that's the general uh, that's the general premise. That's what you're getting into. So it it is it is it does fit in the romantic comedy genre, but it's not so much about just this couple in isolation. And
0: no. In fact, you can see it almost as a sequel to another rom
1: com. Did you Hunter?
0: Uh-huh, did me Hunter?
1: Famed fan of rom coms. <laughs> enjoy this particular confection.
0: Um,
1: I thought it was enjoyable enough. I guess.
0: I thought it was. Uh, I don't know. There's some jokes that I laughed at. Um, I mean it's. still worked well enough i guess for me um i don't know i I felt pretty pretty happy and and good after leaving the theater uh but uh yeah i don't know (laughs) what do you think of it cool cool
1: good good work (laughs) 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 i honestly don't know what else to say to you um okay so so i mean by the nature of the thing, it is very slight.
0: Yes, I thought it was entertaining, but featherweight, I guess is how. I'm yeah, saying.
1: yeah, yeah, featherweight. So it, yeah, it is it is slight, but I I think it's nonetheless quite satisfying. Yes.
0: Well, there are some things that I must admit that I
1: objected to, which which hopefully hopefully you will be able to articulate. Sure. Yes. Um, and I will confess. That uh, I was in tears at, at, at a number of points in this <laughs> movie. <film. are> <laughs> yes. Oh my god. <laughs> so either it is effective in what it is setting out to do, because it does want you to feel something at certain points, or I'm broken.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wonder what time that could be. <laughs> and several points. Oh my god. I don't even know what to say anymore. Like you ruined me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh at you. But I don't even, like, I honestly don't even know where you would cry. Like, when they weren't getting together.
1: <laughs> there were parts that were clearly orchestrated for, like, an emotional beat, right?
0: Yeah, sure, but I don't really see crying.
1: <laughs> I can't remember, like, every point in which I cried, but I definitely cried more than once. Not, I mean, I wasn't, like, you know, wailing in the cinema. Yeah, you weren't sobbing, yeah. But I was tearing up. There's obviously an estrangement at a point in the film because of this this conflict between Constant Wu's background and Henry Goding's family, especially Michelle Yeoh, and they do sort of temporarily split and go through that normal stretch of a romantic comedy in which there's that, that conflict and they have to reconcile again. Part of her plan was this was this mahjong game that she plays against Michelle Yeoh and this speech that she delivers, which I, which I thought was one of the, the better parts of the film. And yeah, that, that, I, I'm sure I was tearing up at that section as well. So <laughs> um, it is, as, as you've said, it's a rom-com without a meat cute which is curious, but I think that's fine because yeah, it's something different. We've yeah. seen Meat cute a million times before. I think it's kind of interesting to see it in a different way. The, the one thing that that um, denies the film is us getting to know Henry Golding a bit better than we do. Or
0: I, I think neither of them are especially, uh, drawn especially well.
1: But I think I think Constance Wu carries the film really. I think she does she does a really good job. And Henry Golding, in contrast, just really needs to be handsome and charming. Which and he pulls, pretty much is. Yeah. He pulls off both admirably. Yeah, I agree with that. I did find that he resembled at points a sort of non sleazy version of Billy Zane. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> i can't say that particular uh comparison occurred to me but he has a very similar smile to to billy zane <laughs> yeah, i guess i could see that i just i guess i like to me billy zane is quintessentially bald so i don't i can't, it's hard for you to find a comparison that doesn't involve
1: that and i guess does he have hair in twin peaks i guess he does and he has hair in the phantom And there's the phantom so come on man call yourself a film critic i do not call myself a film critic <laughs> wait does doesn't he have hair in titanic even i haven't seen titanic so (laughs) jesus christ what roles are you thinking of like what latter day billy zane roles
0: like um there's one film i remember watching i can't remember the name of it where he's like it's like memory problems or something and there's like a serial killer so he's
1: like a serial killer in in Deep Calm as well.
0: No, he's not a serial killer. He's like, he's haunting a serial killer. He's haunting a serial Not haunting. He's haunting a serial killer. I
1: mean, did I say Deep Calm or Dead Calm? Because I meant Dead Calm. Or
0: like, uh, I think of him in like, in like Zoo Inn. That's like my... Yeah,
1: yeah, okay. That's my bully saying. But you should see Dead Calm. It's a nice film. It's a really nice <laughs> film. Shut up.
0: <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> oh, Memory. It's just called Memory. That's the film I was thinking of um yeah i don't know i i i will admit that i I, some like the wealth porn didn't really work for me and i was i was i was a little put off by like how much of like a uh like a uh it seemed like some of the movie was funded by like the tourist board of singapore for a little bit oh yeah Totally. i
1: mean
0: it sort of it's it stops doing that like maybe midway through the movie but at the beginning i was like oh jesus fucking christ uh especially like the bit at the pacific or when they're on the airplane it's just like this is how great this airplane service is isn't this this so wonderful when they first get to singapore they're just like walking around that market it's like singapore is the only country that has Michelin-star street vendors please come to singapore (laughs) it's like jesus christ
1: and it has received some criticism for its monocultural depiction of the otherwise quite diverse singapore
0: yes but in fairness it is focusing on like a Chinese family
1: so and I, I think it does get to it does get to show um, <laughs> the, the guards of the mansion <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's basically a, that's yeah. representation right yeah <laughs> you said you said you laughed at points but I, I found some of the more overt jokes to be a little bit on the weaker side I think
0: well I'm a I'm an easy laugh so
1: and I'm an easy cry clearly so, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> so I think I think John Chu does a decent job of keeping things going at a, at a, at a good clip
0: yeah he's got that sort of music video party aesthetic that works.
1: So it doesn't like lag anywhere really. It just it just belts along. And it's quite a long film as a romantic comedy. It's like over 2 hours by one minute. But like it didn't seem that even that long watching it. And there is one moment of I guess visual invention of flashiness when uh, Chu has to tackle the old problem of how to depict text messages on screen and there's like an elaborate sort of animated section uh, early on,
0: I always kind of hate that stuff.
1: Um, but I, I think I think that's better than some of the attempts I've seen in the past. Yeah, I
0: guess. I just all movies should be set in the past before there were cell phones.
1: <laughs> I think that bit had some flair. I think it worked on its own terms. But the rest of it, there was it was just yeah, just straightforward and it's like decently directed, I guess.
0: Mm. I'll say that yeah, it was it was enjoyable, uh, and I think more exciting than the movie itself is. The uh, fact that it opened a lot of doors for Asian filmmakers and uh, screenwriters and such, and actors to make asian themed movies in Hollywood, which is obviously great. I'm
1: very pleased it's doing so well. Yeah, me too.
0: And I, I, I will say that the, the class conflict in the film, like, it's believable. Like, it rang a little hollow that uh, I, d- I don't, I I find this sort of like American dream, like the way it sort of puts forward the idea of American dream or the American dream is like this, such this like great contrast to Singapore in a way, right? And I thought that was kind of like ridiculous. <laughs> it's a little offensive.
1: You already hinted at this, but it did seem a little bit too in love with the world of the rich and famous to really carry off any criticism of it.
0: I've read some like description, this one was like, satirical but that does not not come through in the movie at all (laughs) there's too much there's too much pleasure that he takes or that the film takes in this sort of spectacle of being rich that it there's like some like there's like some like catty lines that are thrown about that like superficially like um criticize the the you know really rich class but it's a film that's like if only rich people were a little nicer then everything would be great you know i don't know but it's still enjoyable i think
1: oh yeah definitely
0: well, uh, I guess we can transition from that segment to our second segment. Picture of books Which is all about two films directed by Nagasa Oshima. Uh, and these two films are as follows. Night and Fog in Japan, which was released in 1960. And then we're going to weep forward in time a whole, was it? Five years. Five
1: years.
0: I, yeah, uh, yeah. Nineteen sixty-five. Right. So the, the other film we're going to discuss is *Pleasures of the Flesh* or *The Pleasures of the Flesh*, uh, depending on how you how they translated it. Which is sort of his first independent film, and I, I, from what I've heard, like kind of a development in his artistic like practice to our screen. So uh, I guess we could talk about the first film in the series, which is *Night in Fog in Japan*, which um, is notable for. Being taken out of cinemas by its um, distribution company, uh, I think a week after it was released because the leader of the Socialist Party got assassinated. <laughs> and they're like, this is not the right time to be showing this movie. That's uh, fairly critical of uh, left wing politics and the mainstream of leftist thought and the infighting in yes. <clears throat> so essentially, Night and Fog in Japan. Is, it's a very complicated film, so I will probably struggle to synopsize it uh, successfully.
1: I'm glad you're the one who has to synopsize it.
0: <laughs> so the film opens uh, <laughs> on the wedding of uh, Nozawa, who's played by Fumio Watanabe, who is a frequent collaborator. Uh, He's
1: in every single one of Oshima's films we've seen today.
0: Yes. To uh, Harada, um, who's played by. Uh, Miyuki Kuano, who is also in Cruel Story of Youth as the female lead in that film um, and they are two um, former student radicals um, and the film opens on this wedding and th- that's sort of the action that's like the present day location um, but it is frequently intruded this sort of this depiction of this wedding by uh, interruptions both in the form of uninvited guests storming in and making speeches, and in the fact that all these, the wedding sort of acts as this uh, sort of coming to a head of all these frustrations and unresolved conflicts that happened in the past regarding the student movement, uh, or the left-wing student movement, especially regarding protests uh, against the uh, Joint Security Treaty, and... There was one there of, was one of
1: <coughs> there was remember. one. Oh, I forgot. I forgot the terminology as well. But I remember it was about like the measures they are allowed to take against radical organizations. But
0: oh yeah, that's right. That's that's like a, a alien, not alien, like a um, sedition act or something like that.
1: It was the only one that was successful. They yes. managed to be yes. successful in that particular protest. But yeah, yeah. But
0: the film is essentially constructed as a series of flashbacks, um, where uh, over the course of this wedding, people intrude and. The various guests all have their moment to sort of talk. And it sort of lacks a main character. Um, and the majority of the uh, flashbacks sort of revolve around these two protests. Uh, and specifically an incident that happens um, when they were also in college where a um, they capture a spy who is attempting to steal their documents, or a possible spy. Uh, and then uh, he escapes because someone presses a buzzer, which allows the guards to be distracted and to escape and the eventual result of this is that a sort of a weak-willed member of the organization commits suicide because of the rumors that he was the one who allowed him to escape Um, and then additionally it sort of reveals how the couple that are getting married met and sort of the uh, controversy surrounding the disappearance of another radical at a protest where the two lovers uh, were first introduced
1: what i find interesting is is like the the
0: oh god i got let me pause right there i gotta take my uh, laundry out of the uh dry drying machine the dryer the dryer
1: the dryer i'm gonna go to the bathroom okay perfect Hey,
0: how's it? How's it going? How's the bathroom? Did you uh, get it all out? Just
1: did a big stinking shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's good That's good as you, as the listener would have heard, I'm sure. Oh God. Hey, <laughs> <I hate laughs> you so
0: much. I hate this stupid
1: podcast. But they didn't do it in the last episode. That was pre- actually in the last two. So we've gone two straight episodes without <laughs> shit sound effects. So impressed. <laughs> Jesus Christ i mean rather good sound effects about shit so i don't want to give the wrong impression well, anyway so back to
0: night in fog in japan oh uh, yeah kind of a tasteless title i have to say i
1: i was like expecting this to be like a japanese equivalent of night and fog the the alum renee film which i have to, ironically
0: I have to watch for my wednesday class
1: did you find like any context about why he went with that title like, it's, I find that very strange.
0: Uh, apparently, that's, like, the, it's the same thing in Japan. Like, it's not just, like, a weird translation or something. And isn't representative of the film that much at all, I must say.
1: No. That's why I was, like, kind of taken off guard with what it ended up being.
0: Yeah, I was still. So, what did you think of right. Night Did Foggy Japan?
1: I think this was the the best of the Oshima films that we've watched so far, by by some margin. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's a really powerful sort of evocation of, of what I learnt was Oshima's disillusionment with the left because he was involved in some of these movements um, prior to making this film.
0: I see, presumably some of this was based on his own experiences with the movements.
1: Yeah, so he would have seen that type of infighting and conflict um, and the way the movement sometimes can eat itself at the expense of its goals. It's a really compelling mix of that infighting between the different factional groups, the sort of philosophical Marxist discussions and Stalinist discussions. But the most noteworthy thing about this film, from my perspective, is on a formal level.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It's so well composed. And just that it has this like odd sort of quasi-theatrical quality.
1: I've never seen a more cinematic integration of something that is inherently theatrical. So it uses a lot of these theatrical techniques. Like the whole setup of the film is straight out of a stage play where you have this gathering of people and you have these other characters being introduced and then their backstory gets revealed over the course of the the story it's very much the sort of stuff you would see in a stage production um and it has that that kind of vibe about it but the way he he shoots that and the way he uses like theatrical techniques like spotlighting for the flashbacks is so like cinematically satisfying yeah uh, I've never seen anything like that,
0: and it's great. And he, he uses such um, uh, specifically. I noticed a lot of like the camera movements, like worked on just a t- like a, both like sort of a narrative and like a philosophical or, or um, critical level too.
1: I really enjoyed like from the first moment when the camera sort of zooms or dollies in quite unstably, right? But it is otherwise an unbroken section in which it, it swoops back and forth from character to character of this scene from the perspective of what would be the audience in a theatrical production. Yeah, it's so interesting in the way that's done. It's not just like hanging back and letting the scene play out. It's actually directing your focus.
0: No, it's not. It's not theatrical in the sense that uh, the camera is just like stationary. It's just shooting like a single, like people talking and stuff like that. I like guess it's, it's it uses specific camera techniques to to produce these effects.
1: I, I found that really, really interesting. Yeah, is
0: just breathtaking, honestly.
1: Because there was that a little bit of that shaky cam kind of style as it gets to these particular movements, although it's, it settles down at points and it's much more fluid at other points. It felt like almost a mixture of verite and then this really artificial kind of self-conscious theatricality.
0: And it, it really, it, it's a match to the specific material that he's working with, too.
1: Well, it's like, in a, it's, an, it's an ensemble and it's not necessarily trying to take a, any particular one character's perspective. right? No. It's intentionally keeping you at somewhat of a distance.
0: Brechtian right? in that way
1: and just panning from the different... Yeah, the different characters going back and forth, all that sort of stuff. So you're never really integrated fully or on the side of any particular character. It's kind of just him revealing, as he seems to usually do in these films, the failures of everyone involved. Yeah. Um, I, I. But
0: I, I will admit that I actually had somewhat of a, um, emotional reaction to, to some sequences. This. And there's some specific shots that really, like, move on really a really fundamental level. Like, there's one scene where... Um, the main character is sitting in his like in his room and he's become somewhat disillusioned with the the political movement. he's just sitting there smoking and the camera just sort of like pans up and just like shows you the the uh, interior of the room and just shows you all the like slogans that the students have written on the walls and stuff and the the specific like posters, the political posters. And I thought that that is just such a great like sort of moving way to like show how the, like the the ideology and like the slogans have like failed to really like captivate and like direct this person it was I don't know it was a really good evocation of disillusionment in in the political system
1: and also the way they used like the protest songs that you would hear in the background and stuff was was really interesting
0: and especially at the end sequence I mean it's it's just this amazing shot where this like the the blowhard like the the student leader who like uh, committed to like actually working with the communist party and has become sort of like this um, guy who just sort of spouts ideology that has no real bearing on the real world is like sort of uh, domineering and you know, like out of touch, I guess.
1: <laughs> and hypocritical. <laughs> yeah, as well. hypocritical. Yeah. And, and he really personifies someone who is unable to reconcile with past mistakes of the movement. And he just rushes past everything and, and just recycles these slogans and this rhetoric. This
0: is this great shot of just him just spouting all this nonsense and the the songs playing in the background. It's this just, just great this like just great distillation of the failures of the
1: party. Yeah, it's such a it's such a good ending. Yeah,
0: it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, I, I completely agree. This is like the most effective of his films that we've watched so far. Like by far.
1: Now, because we've seen like a bunch of His films at this point. It is interesting to try and work out what his particular style is, and I think he's an interesting case in that. I don't think he seems that interested himself in forging a unique personal style that he carries from film to film.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I feel like he tries to more suit his approach, his stylistic approach to the material or what he's trying to accomplish with each film. Because there's such a world difference between like a town of love and hope and like this, or even like a cruel story of youth, it, which has like some stylistic similarities, like especially the use of music is somewhat similar, but is still like so radically different. Because that film was a lot of like, I mean, there's like some long takes, but it's it's mostly just like quick cutting and stuff like that, and it has a lot more like naturalistic footage.
1: I almost think like he's he's almost mercenary in in a certain respect, where his motivation not is not so much money, but a particular message or thing that he wants to convey or evoke, yeah. he'll come to a style that will suit that. And that doesn't mean he's any less radical in the styles he chooses, as this film demonstrates. Uh, it just means that, like, he's, he doesn't fall into the trap of, like, well, this is an Oshima film, and therefore it's going to be like this.
0: Yeah, it's it's difficult to sort of take specific stylistic things, like his altores stamp. I mean, I feel like there's, like, thematic things you could read into his, his films that... that... That is, that is pretty consistent across, I would say, all four films that we watched. Uh, Night in Fog in Japan is definitely worth it. I actually thought it was kind of like a masterpiece, to be honest. <laughs> I do, too. Uh, so if you're going to watch any of the Oshima films that we've watched, though, definitely watch Night in Fog in Japan. I think that's the conclusion that I've come to. And I would also recommend, if you, would, if you watch it and enjoy it, there's a great Chris Marker documentary about sort of the same movement, but specifically focused on France and South America, called Grin Without a Cat. That is great. Um, it's also just about the failures of the socialist movement, which is a topic that a lot of filmmakers seem to engage with within the 70s and 60s, so. I watched this film and it's almost like a weird nostalgia, because at least, like, there is some sort of, like, um, concerted, like, leftist movement that's depicted in this film, which is just not present at all today, you know? Maybe this is why this film is so. Uh, we found it to be so accessible is the fact that it's like a, a theme that can apply to almost any political movement to a certain extent. Um, even though it does not, I mean, by by having that sort of broad appeal, it does not uh, deny the very like uh, specific context that he's uh, depicting here. And I I feel like you don't even need to know that much about um, Japanese history to really appreciate this film. But I could be. Um, but I, I found the use of flashbacks especially to be compelling. It's just like a way to decentralize each character. Like the, the storytelling that he, he uses is such a, is such an interesting like narrative strategy. Um, so let's move on to the uh, second of the Oscar films that we watched today, which is called Pleasures of the Flesh, or The Pleasures of the Flesh. Um, which, do you want to introduce this one?
1: So based on a... Um book called pleasure inside the coffin the premise of this film is that there's this guy who has developed a fixation on this young school girl who is employed at some point to tutor and she is she's younger than him and at some point the girl gets sexually assaulted by an older man and the parents engage for lack of anyone else engage the student to deal with it somehow (laughs) i know it's just like Oh, this random guy. <laughs> he goes to him and initially tries to pay him off um, and say, like, you never return. And But it's clear that the guy has plans to exploit the situation and, like, blackmail the parents or something about what happened. Um, so he ends up pushing him off the train and killing him. Anyway, this is witnessed by a third party who goes to his flat unexpectedly at a particular point and tells him that he saw what he did but that he will not inform the police as long as he does something in return, which is to mind a significant amount of money that he has embezzled while he goes to jail for a short term. Well, five years. <laughs> relatively short term. Anyway, so he, his plan is that he will get caught, he will go to jail for five years, and then he will be released and he will come back and he will get the money off this guy. The reason he's done that is that he has no personal ties to him. He just happened to see him murder someone on, on a train. So,
0: it's a very, very Hitchcock. <laughs>
1: yeah, it is very Hitchcock. He doesn't think there'll be any risk of, of people tracing the money to this particular person. The girl the student is obsessed with uh, ends up getting married to someone else. So he decides to just say, fuck it. I'll kill myself after a year because the guy's getting out of prison in a year at this point. So he's looked after the money for four years. He's like, fuck it, I'm just going to use all this money and then kill myself. Then he wonders, what am I going to spend my money on? And then he goes, ah, I know women. (laughs) Women, yeah. (laughs) So he sets about paying a series of women to live with him for a particular stretch of time until he gets bored of them or whatever. And in return, he will enact revenge upon his former crush on their body
0: how did he phrase it he found he phrase it yeah it's pretty much like that he's like uh i was at all someone i'm going to get revenge on her on your body and she was
1: like well that, that's different i haven't heard that before but okay <laughs> yeah well <laughs> i guess i'll go along with it so obviously uh the main character in this film not the most likable of protagonists speaking of his likability um The only girl that he ends up being really satisfied with is like a mute girl with a mental illness (laughs) slash learning disability who doesn't understand what he's saying.
0: Hugh, did this film, did you experience the pleasures of the flesh while watching this film?
1: Or in other words, did you enjoy it? (laughs) (laughs) Or appreciate it or whatever, you know what I mean? I mean, I don't think it's as successful as, as Night and Fog in Japan, certainly. But... It's it's a curious and interesting film in its own right.
0: I, I didn't I didn't care for it that much to be honest.
1: I think like I had the similar reaction that you said you had to *Cruel Story of Youth*. Yeah, I think it's it. I think it has parallels to *Cruel Story of Youth*, particularly actually.
0: Yeah, because there's definitely certain aspects of it that I really appreciate, like the some of the formal effects that he gets for, especially his use of exposures. is, like amazing, <laughs> and uh, there's. Just some great evocations of this, like, demented guy's headspace that, like, really work. But I kind of felt... I found watching it to be kind of a chore, to be honest. <laughs> and, like, some of it is just the fact that this guy is, like, so unlikable and, like, there's no... And I, I don't mind films that have awful protagonists, but I just felt the... I, I just didn't find the treatment of him to be that interesting. Like, I didn't... I... I, I at a certain point, I was like, just, why am I watching this, like complete
1: asshole did you notice that uh, he did a call back to cruel story of youth with an apple eating scene <laughs> yeah you know, the apple eating scene i did
0: and what we can even talk about the weird uh live smashing scene in night in japan
1: oh yes that was weird yes so there is a fruit motif There
0: is was one visual element <laughs> that turns into which is strange uses of fruit <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think, I think I kind of agree with you. But I didn't find it necessarily a chore to get through. I think there was enough about it that was interesting. But what I, I think the most interesting thing was just the, the mechanics of the, the story. We've already touched on the fact that it was Hitchcockian. But it also reminded me of something that maybe like Park Chan-wook would make or like would, would be interested in. Yeah. Although like, I'm sure he'd want more twists and turns at some point in the film. but
0: His, his version would also not deny you uh, visual pleasure, which I thought this film did to some extent.
1: I mean, the one, the one thing that is again consistent about Oshima's style of film to film, even when the specific cinematic techniques differ, is that he, he does always seem to approach the material from an observational perspective that never entirely lets you in on the, the characters.
0: Yeah, you're, you're held at a remove from everyone. But this, I feel like this film, more than any of his other ones, is it really wants you to get into the headspace of its character. It's almost entirely told from this
1: guy's point of view. And we see, like, his hallucinations. Yeah, prison, so, so like,
0: uh, there's a lot of, like, um, effects like that, like hallucinations, like, well, he'll see, like, an image of his, of his, like, the girl he was obsessed with, the guy that he, he put into prison, which is intended to, like, demonstrate his his role like it's it, it seems to be shot from his point of view to some extent without endorsing it
1: necessarily it's definitely nowhere near as, as interesting as and successful as not in Fog in japan or anything like that
0: yeah it's kind of a shame because it's like he would, well i mean i guess i don't i guess we haven't watched any of the films that he made in the intervening years but i was kind of hoping that that's the style that he poisoned *Night in Fog in japan would sort of seep into his later films i mean obviously i know that like like, his his, like, turn to, like, um, more standard techniques and, like, Miracle Sister Lawrence, like, moves away from it, but still, I was, I don't know. I, I think I, I watched Night of Fog and I was like, oh, I'm so excited to watch Pudges of the Flesh and I was kind of let down by it, to be honest. But what did you think he was trying to do with this film?
1: I don't think I'm equipped to analyze this film on a thematic level or, or where it fits in the context of where it is. I feel
0: like Cruel cool Story of Youth, I was able to read stuff into it to some extent, right? And same thing with Night and in Japan. So that's how I was kind of...
1: Yeah, it's actually it's actually difficult to think like exactly what what his motivations were for this particular story. Yeah, it
0: actually kind of reminded me of a Seijin Suzuki film in a sense, where it seemed like almost like he was he, he was assigned this, but it, but it which was obviously not the case because it was like an independent production. But that like he took this sort of like basic generic story and was just trying to like explode it essentially. And I think that the Winkage of sex and death is obviously something that influences all of his films to some extent. Mm. I mean, especially uh, as we go on, like, in the roughness, that's like, pretty much what it is, right? I can definitely read, like, themes of that into it. And it, it does seem to, it, it has some interest in, like, erotic obsession, right? Yeah, I just, I, I felt kind of, like, disconnected, I don't know. But I, I think, again, I think there are some, like, the the this film is, like, it has some just amazing, like, formal effects. Like, there's one montage sequence where there's, like, a montage of these, uh, just these sort of shots of, the city of Tokyo, I, I suppose. And just like the buildings and like flashing like neon lights and stuff while this woman like in, in uh, that's been superimposed over a woman like putting on perfume.
1: Uh that dude was amazing, yeah. <laughs> that
0: was like, it's just so, I don't know, like it, it, it affected me on this like weird like film level where I was like, I don't, I don't I, I'm not, I guess I'm not in specifically what I'm getting or maybe it's like, I don't know, like it, it works on some subconscious level stuff where you're just like associating these, it's like a, you know, like a Soviet montage essentially. But where the political effect is not, um, it's not like something that is being spelled out to you. It's something that you're receiving by the linkage of these two images. Like the construction of sexuality is like inherently tied to like the modernist city in a way. I thought it was very interesting. But, and there's a sex scene at the, at, that comes near the end that's also amazing. And it's super in and like triple exposure shots that are just like crazy great.
1: The cinematography, like it was in Cruel Story of Youth, the color cinematography is really great. Yeah, it is. I think we've already said this, but if our audience was only going to seek out one of the two films we watched of, of his this week, it'd be Night and Fog.
0: So anyway, so next week, Diary of a Shinjuku Thief and All right, so shall we do our bonus features? I may get to queue up the bonus feature sound effect? Do you have that ready? Bonus. How have we done this podcast for this song. Everywhere you go, everywhere you live, there's a hurt, nowhere to get back to. Everywhere, everywhere you go, you go. everywhere you live, there's a hurt, nowhere to get back to. It. Say okay.
1: again. Which. Um, sitcom is that?
0: Full House.
1: Ah, that's right. You know we'll be together for a million oh. years. The guy sings that and then a woman comes in and says,
0: And I know we'll be together for a million more.
1: I, and it ends with sha-la-la-la. I can't know. I like that. I the Michael J. Fox one and the Tremors guy. And uh, there was that great sitcom with Alfred Molina and two women. I remember I used to watch that. I don't know.
0: That was the least interesting thing we talked about.
1: Period. So um, the least interesting thing. Yeah, I know. that's like it's kind of like a uh, accomplishment. What, what is least less interesting than what we opened the podcast with? <laughs> what did we open the podcast with? We talked about like our favorite artificial flavors for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that
0: was like that was like weird, and I, we talked about me having breast milk while pops. This is pretty weird. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's like kind of interesting. I like this, it's just, just you. you talk, I was talking about I was talking about a bit that we did. Me singing a third of the lyrics and just sort of humming for the rest of it of the full house theme song that you sing a theme song that I don't know and then you talking about theme <laughs> songs that you sing. Like literally no one would give a shit about this if they listened to it. Bonus features bonus. Now it's time for our bonus features. I haven't watched that many movies, so it'll be a little quick this time.
1: And I have watched a grand total of one.
0: (laughs) So I've only watched three, and one of them I watched today, so... Okay, so maybe you should start... I watched two movies for class last week. One of them was Run, Lower, Run, which... Have you seen Run,
1: Lower, Run? I did, and I had to watch that in high school, actually, as part of my, like, cinema studies or media studies class. Yeah, it's
0: a film that a lot of sort of introductory media studies classes use because it's, like, really illustrative of, like, narrative theory or who cares... And it was, like, fine. Didn't really make much of an impact on me, I'll admit. I I
1: felt like I'd seen it before after a while. But
0: it... Shut up. It was enjoyable uh, on, like, an entertaining level, but I don't really know if its attempts to, like, engage me philosophically worked uh, at all. (laughs) And it was so funny, because one of the people in my class was like, oh, my God, this film movie was so modern. I was like, what are you talking about? This just feels like it's from the 90s. Like, everything about it is so, like, locked in its specific time of being the 1990s in West Germany. Like, the the like MTV-style like uh, animated bits that sort of link the, the segments.
1: I remember it feeling dated at the time, <laughs> honestly.
0: Yeah. Well, it's just like... It's like one of those, like, linkage movies. And there's some really interesting stuff that happens in it, but it's a little, like... Eh, it's fine. I don't know. Um, the other film I watched for class is Citizen Kane, which we don't have to get into, but it's obviously perfect and great. <laughs> or so, one of hair favorite directors. Green half stars. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, and this is probably his... Um, most, um, his most perfect film, I'd say, because all his other ones are sort of. Um, Wait,
1: that's controversial. So you're saying Citizen Kane is uh, Orson Welles' masterpiece? No, I'm not saying that.
0: I'm saying that <laughs> it is a masterpiece. I don't know if I would say it's his masterpiece.
1: Well, it's the only. It's the only film in which he had complete carte blanche and some sufficient financing to produce. Right, but
0: all his other films are interesting in how they react to those. Limitations, the limitations, yeah. While Citizen Kane, while exactly what he wanted to make, and fascinating from its own right, especially after you read about it, like the stories of his creation and how it, I don't know how it came together, uh, is very great. But it almost feels a little like too sealed off in terms of like film history and that sort of thing to really be film that'd be like, oh my god, it's like the perfect great film of all time. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, but I think it's amazing, and everyone should watch it nonetheless
1: the deal he, he he managed to strike to make that film and the freedom that he had is astonishing it's so it was like un- unprecedented and especially
0: in the period when it was made yeah and he, he like
1: and he like he completely wasted it after that but it's so funny that like his his career is like beginning with that level of creative freedom and autonomy and uh, backing it was because he was
0: he was he was already like uh famous as a successful artist before the movie was released Yes. In theater and in radio. But not in cinema. <laughs> no. But I mean that's what they were trying to they were trying to make a film that was like a self conscious artistic product to an extent. And uh, and they gave him they his he had basically complete creative control over his next film, which was The Magnificent Ambersons. But essentially after he failed, finished filming it, um, he left for Brazil to make another film, which is a release called It's All True, right? And uh, because he he did not participate in the post-production, it was taken away from him for that reason. So, <laughs> I don't know. But it's really interesting. Regardless. Citizen Gate, it's terrific, as the poster says.
1: Even in its compromised form, um, The Magnificent Amazons is, is great. Have you seen it?
0: No, I've not. I'm going to get the Criterion version of it now. My favorite film of his is um, Chimes of Midnight. All right. Uh, so, and then the final film I watched today... <laughs> is Hugh, I think you know as I do that we have a limited time on Earth, right? We do? Yeah. <laughs> that our, uh, the hours, though, <laughs> yeah. I've <not> been <laughs> wasting my whole life. What are, we,
1: what are we doing here? <laughs> Why are we recording this goddamn podcast? <laughs> you could have like interjected at any time and said, hey, do you know that I <laughs>
0: Well, I am sorry. I'm glad. I'm glad that you had this re- revelation, though. So, as you know, we have a limited time on Earth. Uh And the hours that I have of free time, especially, have been limited as of late because of my uh, academic career and my uh, job, right? So, obviously, every film that I have to watch, I have to make a uh, a choice as to how I'm going to spend my time. I can't just idly watch anything, which is obviously why I decided today, um, on this rainy Monday, to watch the movie Future World. (laughs) Have you seen Westworld? It's not, it's not that Future World. <laughs> future World, um, since you asked, is a film directed or co-directed by James Franco.
1: Oh, that one. Jesus.
0: <laughs> it's basically just a really shitty Bad Max ripoff that's literally unwatchable. Um, it has this like, sub-Emmanuel Lebesky sort of style to it, right? Where it's like lots of like, long fluid takes, right? That are like nauseating. Um, it's totally, it's so terrible. I
1: can't imagine, like, a worse experience than watching
0: it. <laughs> Well, yeah, neither can I. Two great parts of this film, I just want to highlight real quick, which is there's a scene where the main characters go to a sort of this, this thing that's called Love Town, right? But it's basically just, like, this, like, low-rent strip club, right? Um, which the, the fact that all the women there are, like, sex slaves does not stop the film from sexualizing them to a large extent. Uh, so nothing problematic there. But it's James Draco, so you know that you're gonna get nothing but the best gender politics. Um, but the this it's supposed to it, you know, the the atmosphere that I feel they're going for is sort of like a decadent like club atmosphere. You know what I mean? With, like a huge party, right? But it's wildly undercut by the fact that the, the strip club is like a unfinished bar. <laughs> and there are maybe fifteen extras running around ra- ra- wondering about this <laughs> bar.
1: What you mean like they're trying to go for like a hominy career? sort of <laughs> I guess so. But, like, I feel
0: like what they wanted to do was, like, the the club sequence in Mission Impossible fallout, right? Just the intensity, like, that atmosphere. But, again, they have 15 different extras, which is really funny. (laughs) Um, And then the other main highlight was there's a sequence near the end of the film where they go to a church. The main characters go to this church. And there is some atrocious day for night. (laughs) Which is so funny because, like, essentially they just tint the screen blue, right? And there is a shot where they're like walking under the, the ceiling that it's like collapsed, and you can see like the rafters, right? And it's so obviously sunlight. <laughs> and the best part is they cut uh, in specific shots in the scene, and the tint is completely different <laughs> in some of the shots. <laughs> it's so terrible. Um, James Franco is awful as you might expect. it's the villain uh, mm-hmm. it's, and um, <laughs> the main character who's like this boy uh, is played by Jeffrey Wahlberg who is uh, Mark Wahlberg's nephew so nice. you know who he's talented. Nice. Um, I would say never watch this movie it's not even like fun to watch it's just awful so there you go.
1: Can't say I'm, I'm surprised and <laughs> um, was that all the films you watched?
0: Yes that's it
1: um, the only film I watched is a film I actually just re-watched, which was um, They Came Together. Have you seen that?
0: I have not yet. We've we'll talked about it before.
1: Um, so They Came Together comes from the same creative team responsible for Wet Hot American Summer, um, Michael Sherwalter and David Wayne, who is the director and co-writer. Um, and it's probably more of a, a, an outright spoof film than Wet Hot American Summer is. But it's tonally quite similar in terms of its sensibility, its comedic sensibility. But this is going specifically to parody the romantic comedy tropes that we are both so familiar with. Speaking of romantic comedies that we watched this week. When they're at their best, and I think this is them at their best, I'm so attuned to their comedic sensibility that I am a helpless audience member. And even though I've seen this like at least... Twice before. I actually cried with laughing watching it again.
0: So you cried two times at the movies this week?
1: Sorry, cried with laughter watching it again. Yes, I did. This is the second film I, I cried in.
0: Wow, that's um, that's something.
1: Oshima left me impassive, but these two films brought me to tears. I, I used to think it kind of got flat at certain points in the film because a, a sort of casualty of their style is that it's something you can't necessarily maintain the momentum of across an entire film um but i've kind of come around like seeing this again and i didn't have any problem with it on this particular viewing so i really 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 enjoy it would, would really recommend it <laughs> <laughs>